Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Gas prices are rising. How high will they go? We've gone up about eight cents just in the last 24 hours or so. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What will it take for San Diego to achieve net zero? Net zero by 2045 is really the new North Star that is guiding our climate action planning in our region, in California, and in the U.S. and beyond. And how do you recycle lithium-ion car batteries? Plus, we'll tell you about a world premiere musical at the La Jolla Playhouse. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine has sent oil prices soaring, with U.S. oil prices briefly reaching a near 14-year high today. That means higher prices at the pump. San Diego's average regular unleaded gas price has risen nearly 20 cents just in the last week. And all signs point to $5 a gallon gas prices on the horizon. The rising gas prices have state leaders and others searching for ways to limit their impact on the economy. But it also brings up questions about San Diego's reliance on gas-driven cars and climate change. Joining me to talk more about what this means for San Diego is Rob Nicoleski, energy reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Jade. Always nice to talk to you. So when do we expect $5 gas to be a reality in San Diego? Well, it might be coming sooner than we thought. Uh, When I wrote uh, my story about gas prices yesterday in this morning's paper, the gas analysts were saying they were thinking that within a week we get to an average price of $5 for a regular gallon of gasoline. But I checked this morning, and according to Gas Buddy, which is this uh, group that tracks where customers can get the cheapest gasoline all across the country, according to Gas Buddy, we're at $4.96 as of late this morning. So we're only four cents away from getting there. So we've, we've gone up about eight cents just in the last 24 hours or so. Wow. So we're about there. So what is at the root of the price increases today? Basically, the root cause, at least lately, has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia is a big supplier of oil. Oil is a global commodity and oil prices are directly linked to or indirectly linked to gasoline prices. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, 
there were all kinds of sanctions and all kinds of, of concerns about oil supplies globally, and the oil prices have just shot up. And can you explain why gas prices tend to rise as we enter summer months, too? The big reason why is because California switches from winter blend to summer blend. It's, it's kind of a, an odd way to describe it because you're thinking summer, you're thinking, okay, June, July, August, but they make the switch over to the summer blended gasoline starting in February. And it's a gradual process. It takes a number of months where uh, the gasoline suppliers, they eventually make this transition slowly from winter gasoline to summer gasoline. The reason why they do that is because summer gasoline has less oxygen in it and it's less polluting but it's also more expensive. Mm. Now, some are calling to suspend this shift from winter to summer blend. Though it would reduce the cost of gasoline here, it doesn't come without those negatives, you know, especially in terms of its environmental impact. You touched on this previously. Talk a bit more about that. Yeah, Patrick DeHaan, who is the fuel analyst for Gas Buddy, and he brought up something that I had never heard anyone else bring up before in this debate. He was saying that perhaps that California could consider a waiver and basically stay on winter gasoline during the summer just for a temporary amount of time. He predicts that that would save about 20 to 40 cents per gallon by the time the entire summer is done. Now, that's the good news. But on the, the bad news side, and he said there are some downsides to it by delaying this and having winter gasoline go through the entire summer, that that winter fuel has more butane in it, which is a higher emitting content. And that's one of the big reasons why we have the summer blend is because we want to be able to reduce the amount of air pollution in California. So much of California and San Diego is part of this as well is in a valley especially when you're talking about Los Angeles, Southern California. And a lot of times the air, our air pollution problems are more accentuated than the ones you might see in other parts of the country. So what else is being discussed as ways to keep gas prices from going even higher? Well, there's a Republican Assembly member in Rockland, California, who has put forth some legislation over in Sacramento that would temporarily, at least for this year, suspend the excise tax in California for gasoline. And that's a pretty hefty amount. That's about 50 cents per gallon. Where that goes, we'll see. Also, the governor brought up, uh, just a couple of months ago, brought up the idea of suspending the increase in the gas tax that is tied to inflation. But that would work out to about one cent per gallon more. So if you fill up your tank 10 to 15 gallons, you know, you can do the math, it'd save about 10 or 15 cents. But so far, there has not been a whole lot of support from the Democrats who dominate the legislature in Sacramento to go along with that. Now, there are some climate change activists and others who may see rising gas prices as welcome news, you know, in, in hopes that it might force people out of their cars and spur more environmentally friendly forms of transportation. Uh, do we have any idea how high gas prices impact people's decision to drive less or choose another way to get around? That's a very good question. I imagine some economists can probably crunch the numbers and come up with some sort of number to figure out that at what price do people start making that transition? I'm old enough to remember in the 1970s when Japan was making more fuel-efficient cars and was ahead of the American car makers who were putting out cars, gas guzzlers that got like 10, 12, 15 
miles to the gallon at the most, whereas the Japanese car makers back in the 70s were having cars that had 20, 25, 30 miles per gallon. And the Japanese car makers like Toyota, Nissan, they made some real inroads. So that could happen, but we'll have to just wait and see. With these increases in gas prices, does this change perceptions at all on the cost of electric vehicles versus gas-driven? It might, just because the overall price of a gallon of gasoline would get so high that people would think, okay, we're gonna, maybe I should make that trans- transition if I'm going to buy a new car. Still, electric vehicles tend to be a little bit more expensive than internal combustion engine vehicles, but California and Governor Gavin Newsom say that by 2030, I believe, we won't be selling any new internal combustion engine cars. So this might be able to further that. We'll just have to wait and see on that as well. I've been speaking with Rob Nikoleski, energy reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jade. As we just heard in the discussion about the complexities of gas blends and soaring gas prices, setting climate action goals is one thing, actually achieving them is much more difficult. That's what San Diego County leaders are finding out as they evaluate the results of a new study. Last year, the county commissioned a regional decarbonization study to determine if San Diego's existing climate action measures put us on track to achieve net zero emissions by 2035. The answer is no, not by a long shot. The study finds that additional policies would be needed to reach the goal, especially involving transportation and building. And additional climate action changes may start to affect the way San Diegans work and live. Joining me is Scott Anders, Director of the Energy Policy Initiative Center at the University of San Diego. The center was involved in conducting the study for the county. And Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. It's great to be here. The title of your report is the Regional Decarbonization Framework, and I'm wondering, can you translate that for us? What were you actually evaluating in this study? Well, the broader Regional Decarbonization Framework report that you're referring to is kind of a technical report that's looking at what it would take to get the San Diego region on a pathway to deep decarbonization, so net zero emissions by mid-century. And the specific chapter that we developed is looking at local policy opportunities. And so what we did was to review the climate action plans in our region to try to understand, as you mentioned in your intro, whether or not they put us on a pathway to these deep decarbonization goals. And just to backtrack for a minute, and achieving net zero means we are no longer adding to the amount of greenhouse gases trapped in the atmosphere? Is that what it means? Yeah, so net zero emissions means that we do whatever we can to reduce or avoid emissions and do as much as possible. But we recognize that we probably won't be able to reduce all emissions. There are certain sectors of the economy that are to address, like heavy-duty trucks, some industrial processes. And so we will reduce to the extent we can. And whatever remaining emissions there are, we will have to remove an equivalent amount from the atmosphere in order to achieve a net zero target. The county upped the ante on climate by pushing up the timeline to achieve net zero. They want to reach that by 2035. Now that's 10 years earlier than the state goal. Are we on track right now to get there? Based on our analysis of the current climate action plans in the region, we are not on track to get to those targets. But I should point out that the climate action plans in the region have a 
target usually in the 2035 timeframe to get about a 40 or 50% reduction. So the current climate action plans never set out to get to a net zero target. So how far away would we be then if we just stuck to what, what the goals are now? Well, what we've found is looking at the commitments of reductions in the current caps gets us relatively few reductions uh, in the bigger scheme. And then we also did another scenario where we said, well, what if we take the best measures, kind of the ones that get the most impact from all the climate action plans and apply them to the entire region? What would that get us? And that gets us significantly more reductions, but still leaves a significant amount of remaining emissions to be addressed. And what are the areas of most concern, the biggest sources of emissions in the county? Yeah, the largest source by far is transportation or or cars and trucks, basically. So that accounts for some 45% or so of emissions. And then from there, electric and natural gas represent another, say, 20 plus percent. And so those categories, those three really energy categories, if you think of it more broadly, so cars and trucks, uh, electricity, natural gas account for a very significant portion of overall emissions in our region. Now, does the report or your section of it offer any ideas on how the county could meet its net zero goal? What we do in the report is we do three separate but related analysis. First, we looked at the authority that local jurisdictions have to influence or regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Second, we reviewed all the climate action plans in the region to kind of find out, you know, who's doing what and what are the similarities or differences between and among climate action plans. And then finally, and I referenced it earlier, is we did this kind of estimate of what would the greenhouse gas emissions impacts be of all of the climate action plans in aggregate. And that's the first time we've done that in our region. So that was kind of a, an interesting endeavor. But from there, we then very specifically dove into the four different decarbonization pathways that are addressed in the other chapters of the technical report. And that includes decarbonizing electricity, buildings, transportation. And then also we looked at natural natural climate solutions. So this would be like the ability for trees to uh, remove and store carbon or other ways of removing carbon. Well, to that point on an even larger scale, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued an alarming report recently. It urged nations to drastically reduce emissions to stop oncoming climate disaster. Are you presenting a regional report like this with the same sense of urgency? Well, I think, again, the assumed goal for our regional decarbonization framework project is net zero by mid-century. And so that really is uh, reflective of the broader goals set out by the, uh, the IPCC, who looked at many scenarios of emissions. And the only scenario to keep global temperatures at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius was the scenario that reached net zero by mid-century and actually then went net negative thereafter. And so net zero by 2045 is really the new North Star that is guiding our climate action planning in our region, in California, and, and you know, in the U.S. and beyond. Do you know what the county is planning to do with the recommendations in this report? My understanding is that the, the next step in the process, so the regional decarbonization framework, broadly speaking, includes three elements. One is the technical report, which our uh, chapter we're discussing here today, um, and that was, that was released uh, recently. There's also a, a workforce development piece, and that report actually, I believe, was, re- was released just yesterday. 
And then the final piece is looking more at some implementation pathways um, about how to kind of move forward in this, this regional framework. Do you know when the county might be coming up with policies in line with these guidelines? Maureen, I'm not exactly sure of the county's timeline on this, but my understanding is that the whole regional decarbonization framework process, that would be the technical report, the workforce development piece, and then the implementation pathways piece will be uh, completed toward the end of the summer, I think in the August or September timeframe. I've been speaking with Scott Anders, director of the Energy Policy Initiative Center at the University of San Diego. And Scott, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. We continue our conversations about California's ambitious climate action goals. One goal is to make all new cars sold in the state zero carbon emission vehicles by 2035. That means more electric cars and a lot more car batteries that will need to be reused or recycled. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has the story. A lab at San Diego State University is filled with bundles of wires, some of them testing battery cells. Near the center of the room is a black steel case containing about 300 cells and weighing more than 1,000 pounds. It's a car battery that once inhabited a Nissan Leaf. Now imagine about a million battery cases like that being dumped into California's waste and recycling stream every year as electric vehicles and their batteries reach the end of their lives. That's what could happen soon after 2035 when all new cars sold in California must be zero carbon emission based on an executive order by Governor Newsom. San Diego State Electrical Engineering Professor Chris Mee is one person looking for an answer to the battery question. Some of them may have enough power or energy capacity that we can use for energy storage projects. Because if you extend the life for another 10 years, you delay the whole life cycle of those batteries, right? When Me speaks about using the batteries for energy storage, he's talking about storing solar energy. That would turn car batteries into solar energy banks for businesses and agencies that can make withdrawals whenever the sun doesn't shine. Kevin Wood, professor of mechanical engineering at SDSU, is also working on the demonstration project that's funded by the California Energy Commission. He says lithium-ion car batteries are typically retired when an electric car loses that crucial mileage range. But the batteries still have 60 to 80 percent of their energy life left. So why don't we try and utilize those batteries right? Um, and, and, and use those systems that we already have in place, that there's no extra energy input required, right? And use those for grid-scale energy storage. I mean, that's, that's the idea. California is leading the way in the use of electric vehicles. The governor's office reports California has 10% of the nation's cars, but 40% of all zero-emission cars. Caroline Godkin is the deputy secretary for environmental policy at the Cal EPA, and for two years, she's been leading the lithium-ion car battery advisory group. Godkin says used-up EV car batteries are hazardous waste, and their elements ultimately need to be recycled even if they have a second life as an energy storage vessel. 
But there's another good reason to recycle them. As we think about our circular economy and particularly the critical materials which are in these batteries, they're also a source of these critical materials um, to be put back into the manufacturing process. Those valuable materials include lithium, cobalt, nickel and manganese, all of which have to be mined. Scientists Chris Mee and Kevin Wood say one key issue is finding a way to make battery reuse economically feasible. Wood says China exports newly minted lithium-ion phosphate batteries. They're not as good as car batteries, but they're quite inexpensive and good enough to use for solar energy storage. Wood says it may not make sense to customers to buy a repurposed car battery when a new one from China will cost not much more. We have to figure out how to minimize cost. Um, specifically when we're talking about grid scale storage, right? Sustainability and cost are two really, really important things. And they're not always correlated, right? Uh, sustainability a lot of times costs more money. And the, the reality of the situation is cost uh, a lot of times wins. Cal EPA's Car Battery Advisory Group expects to finalize its report on reuse and recycling of batteries this month. Then it'll be passed on to the California legislature with the expectation that new laws will follow. Some big questions remain, like who will be responsible for reusing and recycling these batteries? Wood says that is one of several challenging debates people will have to have before 2035, when all new cars in California will have to be zero carbon emission. Joining me is KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge. Tom, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Now, California has a lot of zero emission vehicles on the roads already. So what happens to the used batteries now? I did ask somebody with Cal EPA that very question. Well, what happens to them now? And she started by saying that we are not seeing yet large-scale retirements of these batteries because electric cars have just not been on the road for that long. But we are seeing some retirements of them. She said in some situations, the car manufacturer is taking responsibility for them. In other situations, the car is dismantled and the dismantler will find a way to recycle the batteries. And in other situations, they are ending, you know, this is kind of the worst case scenarios. In some situations, they are ending up in the waste stream. How long does an average EV battery last these days? Well, that kind of depends on the driver who is driving the car, because the expectation is these um, EV car batteries will last about 10 years. It is suggested that they be swapped out when they get down to 80% of their original power. But you know how people are. I mean, they put it off and they may wait until it's down to 60% of its original power. But eventually, you do want to get rid of an old battery because your electric car doesn't have the range that it normally has. It doesn't have the spunk that it normally has. And that's when your average person is going to swap it out. Well, as your report tells us, apparently having tons of old deteriorating electric car batteries in our landfills is not the environmentally friendly outcome California is looking for. What hazardous materials might leach out of those batteries? These batteries are made made from heavy metals that are mined before they're put into the battery. That's a good point to make because the mining does take a lot of energy and is not environmentally friendly itself. But these batteries contain cobalt, lithium, 
uh, manganese, all of which are heavy metals that are toxic depending on the uh, amount that you're exposed to. So, right, you can't just take these battery packs and put them in the landfill. They do have to ultimately be recycled. So why isn't that the plan? Why not just recycled old batteries? Why do researchers want to turn them into solar storage units? Well, you could just recycle them. And recycling is not a bad thing to do. Of course, you are retrieving by recycling it. You're retrieving these heavy metals and hopefully putting them back to use again. But to go immediately to recycling after it's done being a car battery doesn't make a lot of sense because that means that the life of the battery is going to be very short. When it actually has, when it's taken out of a car, it actually has quite a bit of life left. And so a lot of people are saying, well, why just throw those away? Let's find a second use for them. If old electric car batteries were used to store solar energy, where would they be kept? They would be on-site solar storage. In other words, let's say a business or an institution. We're not talking about homeowners here. They wouldn't really be using these kinds of batteries because they would be a little bit too big for a homeowner. But let's say a business wants to store solar energy. They have solar panels and they want to be able to use that solar energy when the sun don't shine, right? The EV battery could become like a bank, an energy bank that a business can make withdrawals from. And so they would, it would be on-site storage. That's kind of what these folks imagine. Now, are researchers envisioning a whole new industry developing to reclaim and reuse these EV batteries? Well, I think a whole new industry would have to exist. I was talking with uh, Chris Mee, who's an engineering professor at San Diego State, about this. And I asked him, well, do you imagine there would be factories that are doing what you are doing in your research demonstration project? And, And what he is doing is finding a way to take these old car batteries and turn them into uh, energy storage units. And he said, yes, there would have to be factories to do this if we're going to do it on the scale that is going to be able to handle approximately a million car batteries that are retired every year in the state of California. Where the money would come from to create those factories, all of those questions have yet to be answered. And there are a lot of big questions that still need to be answered when it comes to reusing these uh, car batteries. Yeah, apparently you tell us California lawmakers will be using the information from the Cal EPA Battery Advisory Group. So are they expected to enact new laws governing the disposal of EV batteries? Well, I think if this system is going to happen, they will have to. There are going to have to be some changes in statute if we are going to require that these batteries be reused and recycled. This really is a bridge that we haven't crossed yet. And the big questions are, how is that going to happen? You mentioned that the Car Battery Advisory Group from Cal EPA is going to be finishing up their their study, their report. And that report is going to be uh, done this month. After that, it's handed over to the legislature. And what happens then? Well, I guess we'll just have to see. I've been speaking with KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge. Tom, thank you. Thank you, Maureen.
Back in 2020, when then-candidate Joe Biden was debating then-President Donald Trump, he came out strongly against one particular practice, separating migrant families at the border. So it was surprising when, in December, news broke that the Biden administration had suddenly dropped out of negotiations to compensate families for the harm they suffered. KQED's Michelle Wiley talked to advocates who believe money and politics are to blame. Back in October, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Biden administration was in talks to pay up to $450,000 to those harmed by family separation under the Trump administration's so-called zero-tolerance policy. These payments were just one part of negotiations between the administration and the American Civil Liberties Union to settle a long-running class action lawsuit. And according to ACLU attorney Lee Gallant, that number wasn't firm. There was no offer on the table. There was no specific amount on the table. And we were prepared to continue negotiating. But as soon as that figure, 450000 was out in the world, the backlash was swift. This incomprehensibly stupid idea of... That is going to be a slap in the face to every hardworking American... Dozens of House Republicans just sent a letter to three cabinet secretaries behind the reported plan demanding answers. And in December, the Biden administration pulled out of talks to compensate families altogether. The two sides were trying to settle claims filed by parents under the Federal Tort Claims Act, a law that allows people to be compensated if the federal government causes them harm. For example, So the police harm someone and or unlawfully detain them, then the victim is allowed to sue the government. Carol Ann Donahoe is the managing attorney for the Family Reunification Project at Alotrolado, a California-based immigrant rights group. She says the families can clearly argue they were harmed. In some cases, it was physical harm. It's emotional distress because we ripped their children from them. And for parents who've been allowed back into the U.S. to reunite with their children and pursue legal status here, that money could really come in handy. A woman named Sandra sought asylum at the Arizona border in early 2017. She had fled Guatemala with her two children because she didn't trust police to protect her from a violent neighbor. But three days after arriving in the U.S., officials took her kids away, saying the facility she was staying in couldn't support them. Sandra was deported without her children and didn't see them for three years until she was allowed to return last spring. She and the kids, now 14 and 15, are sharing one bedroom in a relative's home, and she's suing the government for the trauma that the separation caused. She didn't want to use her last name for fear that talking to the press would harm her case. Sandra says it's hard in the U.S. because things are so expensive. She's trying to earn enough so they can move into their own apartment. And she tells her kids to focus on their studies so they can get good jobs and not suffer so much. Since the negotiations fell apart, people like Sandra will have to go back to court to argue their cases. And the Biden administration will have to defend Trump's family separation policy in front of a judge. If the government loses, it may end up paying families anyway. The Justice Department declined to say why negotiators walked away. But according to UC Berkeley political scientist Lisa Garcia-Bedoya, the upcoming midterm election may have played a role. What the White House in a midterm wants is they want the conversation to be one where they think that they can be portrayed in a positive light. 
But the ACLU's Gallant says it'd be wrong to assume that compensating families for family separation will hurt Democrats politically. You recall in 2018, not just Democrats and liberals, but conservatives and Republicans were outraged about Trump administration taking little babies away from their parents. So I think the Biden administration is wrong to think the politics will be against them for doing what's right here. Angelernt says regardless of the politics, the administration needs to do the right thing. I'm Michelle Wiley. As heat waves, hurricanes, floods, and fires become omnipresent in our everyday lives, so too does anxiety and fear for the future. In response, some mental health professionals are encouraging people to become active in the climate justice movement as an act of personal resilience. The nonprofit Youth for Climate focuses on empowering young people to become leaders in the climate justice movement. Joining me to talk about how to become a climate activist is Megan Phelps, program coordinator at San Diego's 350s Youth for Climate and staff research associate at the UC San Diego Climate Psychology in Action Lab. Megan, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So what do you hear from young people about feeling anxious and worried or or even depressed about the effects of climate change in the future? So what we're seeing is that a lot more young people are feeling anxiety, anger, and fear about the climate crisis and the fact that government is not taking adequate action to protect their futures. In fact, that's one of the top reasons that young people report joining our organization. We just did a feedback survey of our members and 90% of them reported that that was one of the reasons that they joined our organization. And why do you think climate change is causing more anxiety among youth now? I mean, is it social media? I think that social media does play a role because they're seeing that other people like them care and are worried about the issue, which makes it more salient. And also just seeing more impacts. Some authors of a recent study that surveyed young people in 42 countries found that 77% of young people surveyed agreed that the future was frightening. Many were questioning whether they wanted to have children. And that's a correct ethical response to the crisis because it's so huge and will impact their lives. So um, I think just the fact that they're confronting the issue more and seeing it in social media, in the news, is a huge factor in increasing their concern. So how do you think becoming active in the climate justice movement can help with some of those feelings? I think a couple of things. One is just feeling like they're making a difference and that their fears might not come true, that they can inspire adequate climate action. And then the other thing is just being with other like-minded people helps alleviate some of the climate anxiety because it's being validated and they feel um, a sense of collective efficacy that together we can solve this. Is there a certain age group or demographic that you're seeing experience more climate anxieties? Youth for Climate focuses on high school students. So I'm seeing a lot of high school students becoming more anxious about climate and then college students. I think the people who are starting college now are feeling more worried about it. And I think that's kind of true across a lot of age groups. So even the adults who participate in Youth for Climate, we have an adult support team. They 
also are feeling some of that climate anxiety too. And we're doing an after-school program right now at San Diego High School and really emphasizing the intersection of climate change and other more immediate health impacts like uh, reduced air quality. And the Climate Equity Index has identified some of those neighborhoods, the lower-income neighborhoods of color, as being the most vulnerable to climate change impacts in the future um, because they have fewer economic resources to um, be resilient. So we're doing outreach to those neighborhoods and really trying to empower people to work with their communities to rise up and advocate. What steps can youth take to become a climate activist? Well, youth can become active with our organization, Youth for Climate, by going to our website, sandiego350.org, and filling out our volunteer interest form. I think taking action for climate is a personal thing, but it's also better when we come together and build strategic campaigns and rely on each other to create a stronger movement. How can you incorporate being a climate activist into your everyday life? I think, again, joining an organization is the best way to do that. Of course, there are personal steps that you can take. Growing numbers of people are decreasing their meat and dairy intake, driving less, um, transitioning to public transportation, and then, of course, voting and sending letters to elected officials, phone calls are also important. Um, Civic actions will be crucial to address fossil fuel emissions, which are a huge driver of climate change. And just finding a climate organization near you and being with other like-minded people is not only possibly the most effective thing to do, it's also really meaningful and fun. I've been speaking with Megan Phelps, Program Coordinator at San Diego 350's Youth for Climate and Staff Research Associate at the UCSD Climate Psychology and Action Lab. Megan, thank you. Thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Next week, La Jolla Playhouse hosts the world premiere of Bangin' It, a bangin' new musical. The play looks at a mixed-race woman involved in competitive collegiate bhangra, a dance style that mixes Indian and Western influences. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the play's director, Stafford Arima. So tell me what appealed to you about directing Banging It? One of the greatest gifts of Banging It is its inherent joy. When a new work comes, you know, across one's desk and you literally open the pages and you listen to the demo recordings and the script, the characters, the dialogue, the songs leap off the page, then you know that there's something really special about this work. And what role does the music play in this? The music in Banging It has such a effervescence to it. 
it's it bubbles it it kind of uh, sparks it has elements of, of musical theater kind of classic sound and then there is classic Indian uh, sounds that are also in this score so a very rich and diverse score that inevitably moves touches and inspires an audience the score is energetic and it is one of the main ingredients of how this story is being told with such fervor and with such excitement. And you brought up dance. Dance is very key to this and it's a particular style of Bhangra. So how does that reflect the character? When I read the play and it said Bhangra competition, I have to be really honest, I had never heard of Bhangra. And so of course you just Google away and all of a sudden you see this incredible movement, this choreography and this historic movement that's steeped in tradition and how now it's kind of risen to this world of the collegiate world where the kids are doing it and it's, it's hip. And it's such a, an important character to this piece because at the core of this story, it is about a young woman in college named Mary, biracial, figuring out her identity, how she fits in the world and how she fits into her culture. And through the story of Bhangra and through the ideas of the movements and the choreography, we tell the story not only through music and not only through script, but also through dance. Well, it seems like dance and music are this great kind of cultural ambassador. Yeah, you know, dance is such a universal language and it touches people in so many different ways. And it's not just a North American phenomenon. It's a worldwide phenomenon. And movement and rhythm and bodies in motion just electrify the people's souls. And so banging it incorporates all of that kinetic energy into its movement, into its choreography, and tells the story through this extraordinary dance form called Bhangra. And talk a little bit about the character of Mary. What is she going through in this play? Our protagonist in the musical is named Mary Clark, and she is probably like a lot of us, living in a world that is constantly changing and trying to figure out where one fits into this world. And that's what makes, for me, Bangin' It such a universal tale. It's not just about, you know, college students and only college friends are going to enjoy this piece. We all know what it feels like to not quite fit in. And how do you work with this creative team? Because you do have music, you have dance, you have the performers. Um, what is that kind of mix like? One of the greatest gifts about collaboration are finding uh, all of the, the pieces of bringing something to life. And in a musical, you have the music, you have the dancing, you have the design, you have the story. And this team is quite extraordinary in their openness to kind of play. A new work requires that energy. A new work that has never been seen on a stage before requires a creative team that is open to, well, does this song really work here? Maybe we move that song somewhere else. Is this dance work here? Maybe we cut it. Maybe we move this scene to the top and move that scene to the bottom. And that fluidity 
is it's almost like orchestrating a, a, an orchestra. Uh, you have all these major players who are contributing their art and the director tends to kind of be kind of in the eye of the cyclone where all of these amazing kind of creative energies are floating around and lots of drama and lots of laughter and a couple of tears here and there. But we all work together to come to tell one story. And that is what makes the collaboration of a musical so enthralling is even though we're coming at it from different points of view, we're all there to tell the story in the most succinct, in the most entertaining, and the most inspiring way. And I'm just curious how you work with the choreographer. The working relationship between a choreographer and a director is, uh, is very unique in all different productions. Rouge, who is the choreographer for Bangin' It, we have such a, a great simpatico, a, an ability to be able to uh, share an idea that perhaps is in my head. Oh, I see it moving like this, or perhaps can the character try that? And then Rouge will say, oh, well, maybe that and this. And you kind of build ideas together, and then you let the choreographer go into the room and create the magic with the actors and the, and the performers. And then actually out of that kind of pre-production discussion, you get a whole new kind of creation of magic because not only has Rouge gone in and worked with a semblance of something that perhaps she wants to bring to the page and to the stage, but then you have performers who add to the level of, oh, well, maybe I can do this trick here or try this kind of move here. And so once again, it really is all about collaborating and not just between director and choreographer, but also with performer. And what did you personally identify with most in this play? I am biracial and I'm kind of binational, I guess. I'm, I'm Canadian born, but I have American citizenship. And my nationality is Canadian born, but I'm Japanese and I'm Chinese. So this piece that opens the doors to talking about identity and how one fits into the world connected to me because I lived the majority of my life in Canada for 20 plus years and then I spent another 20 plus years in the United States which is you know a very different country than Canada and then also being Canadian but also Canadian Japanese and Canadian Chinese I found myself drawn to this work because of the complexities of those questions who am I what part of me is, am I more Canadian, am I more American, am I more Chinese, Japanese, Canadian? And so because this piece unravels some of those discussions and talking points, I found that to be a personal connection for me, just as Stafford, not necessarily as the director. All right, well, thank you very much for talking about banging it. You're welcome. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Stafford Arima. Banging It, a banging new musical, runs March 8th through April 17th at the La Jolla Playhouse. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.